0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. You ain't nothing but a dog, crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a dog, Hello and welcome to episode 15 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries, and after a quick detour from our comics coverage with an episode about The Things They Carried, I'm back to talking about the individual issues of the comic series with the Nam number 14. Before I do that, I've got some feedback. Some of this goes way back, um, and the first is an email from all the way back in September. It's by uh, Michael Bradley, who is one of the hosts of an excellent Greenland lantern podcast green lanterns light uh, one that i've been enjoying for a while but that has been on a hiatus as of late hoping that'll come back soon he also hosts a superman podcast which i believe is the thrilling adventures of superman he writes hi tom i wanted to drop you a quick email to let you know i've been enjoying in country my history with the nom is thin but its place in my path to becoming a comic reader and collector is important I've read exactly one issue of the series in my life, but it was among the very first comic books I ever read and owned. One Christmas during my preteen years, my aunt gave me what was, to my young eyes, the biggest box of comics in the world. Looking back, it was probably 20, only 20 or so comics. But to me, it might as well have been the Library of Com- Congress in comic book form. To this day, I don't know if she went to a store, Spinners were definitely on their way out at, for, at that point, but still fairly easy to find, and bought every issue on the rack, or if it was a box ordered from the Sears Wish Book, but buried among issues featuring the Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, Alf, the Transformers, and some group called the New Mutants, and more, was an issue of the NOM, number 23 for the curious. Right away, I could tell this comic was different. It wasn't Spider-Man. It wasn't superheroes. It wasn't even the colorful bigger-than-life red lasers and blue lasers world of G.I. Joe. There was something much more realistic, much more gritty about this, back before realistic and gritty became cliches in the world of comics. Perhaps, unfortunately, at the end of it all, the nom didn't light my fire. I was much more interested in the superheroes than war comics, after all. And it would be several more years before I really got into comics, and when I did, I was firmly in the world of DC, the DC Universe, despite the cornucopia of Marvel that was my earliest peek into the world of comics. In the decades since, I've learned more about Spider-Man. Now I know who the new mutants are. I understand why the Hulk was gray, but never the nom. Still, there's always been an alert of a series, or maybe just a nostalgia for the simple time of childhood. Others have pointed out that someone's favorite version of a character is going to be the one that first captured that person's imagination. Similarly, I think the first version of a character, or the first examples of a medium you're exposed to, will always have a special place for you, even if it's a later take that really makes you a fan such is the case for me in the NOM. I might not be a fan of the series, but it's a special place for me, and I'm eager to, all these years later, finally learn more about it. Like I said, I've enjoyed the first six episodes of the show and look forward to hearing more about exploring the series as well as the real-world context as you go forward. I still have my copy of 23, now Torn and worn, with my name scrawled across the top of the first page. Thanks, Mom. As it might be. It should be really fun to dig that out and revisit it when you get there in a few months. Best, Michael Bradley. Thanks for the email, Michael. Uh, my first exposure to comics after, you know, Superman, comics here and there, was G.I. Joe and the Transformers. And uh, when I did become a serious comic collector, it actually was through DC as well. It was Batman. So, and And as I t- talked a little bit about in the first episode of the show recently I just kind of got curious about this series and there were so many back issues available at my comic store I amassed at least the first two years worth and I am as of this recording one issue away from having a complete run unfortunately that issue happens to be the last issue of the series which is a little hard to come by at least if you don't want to pay a lot of money well a lot of money meaning like ten dollars but <laughs> I'll, I'll track it down Next email I have is from Professor Allen. He hosts a couple of great shows on the relatively geeky podcast network. One is the Short Box Showcase, which he co hosts with his daughter Emily. And Emily has a sh- show of her own called Uncovering the Bronze Age, which is also excellent. Professor Allen also hosts the Quarterbin podcast. Uh, the subject of his email is in country number nine, and he writes Tom. I have fallen a few episodes behind, but took advantage of the Veterans Day long weekend to catch up. I thoroughly enjoy your coverage of these issues, even though I have never read a single one. A few comments on the ads. I, too, ordered a lot of books from Mile High Comics and even had my mail order subscription through them for a while. You mentioned in passing an ad from Dave's Comics in the Village Shopping Center in Richmond, Virginia. That was within walking distance of the University of Richmond, where I spent four fun years, along with meeting my wife and getting my degree dave's comics was a highlight of my time there i left richmond almost 15 years ago and believe dave's is still there keep up the good work professor allen i will have to hunt that place down um i'm and i live in charlottesville which is about an hour or so away from richmond and uh every once in a while i'm down there for for something and if I come across a comic book store, I try to go inside. So, keep up the good work, Professor Allen. Professor Allen and I will actually, uh, kind of, sort of, be collaborating on something in the future uh, for this podcast. Uh, it might be actually be the next episode, and I will uh, mention that toward the end of this episode. So, stay tuned. I also want to thank Sean Engel of uh, Just One of the Guys, uh, Scott Davis who also uh, had a couple comments uh, mentioned how much they liked the podcast. In Scott's case, he went out and bought the trade of the first 10 issues, and I hope you're enjoying them, Scott. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'm going to talk about the NOM, issue 14. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarter Bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. The Nom Number 14 was released on September 22, 1987 and has a January 1988 cover date. The credits are as follows. Doug Murray, writer, Wayne Van Sant, penciler, John Beatty, inker, Phil Felix, letters and colors, Larry Hama, consulting editor, Mike Higgins, editor, Pat Redding, managing editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The title of our story is Fatigue Duty. It is March 1967, and all is quiet until Rubino gets his stereo from home, sets it up in the barracks, and starts singing along with Elvis Presley's version of Hound Dog, which was the song that opened our show. Uh, That song, by the way, uh, was not from 1967, nor was it an Elvis original. Uh, it was written by the famous songwriting team of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, and it was originally por- performed in 1952 by Willie May Big Mama Thornton. Uh, it was Thornton's only hit, actually hit number one on the R&B charts, and set- spent seven weeks there. The Elvis Presley version was recorded and released in 1956, it hit number one on on the pop country and the R and B charts, and it was number one on the R and B ch- on the pop charts for eleven weeks, a record that stood until 1992, when "End of the Road" by Boys to Men topped the chart for twelve weeks. That actually didn't last long. The Boys to Men song got knocked off by the Whitney Houston version of "I Will Always Love You," the current longest-running number one song in U.S. pop chart history. Is the boys to men Mariah Carey duet "One Sweet Day," which topped the charts for sixteen weeks in the fall of nineteen ninety-five and early nineteen ninety-six. In case you were wondering what the song, uh, the number one song in the country was, at least at the beginning of March nineteen sixty-seven, it was "Ruby Tuesday" by the Rolling Stones. Anyway, Rubino's singing is interrupted by their new platoon leader. Allernick, who tells him that they, he volunteered for this particular duty because he's the best officer he knows nah. he wants the unit to be the best in the army so he tells Sarge to give them something to do and that something to do means picking up cigarette butts that have been discarded the guys complain but Clark explains that it's actually more important than they think and he relates a story about how not picking up butts almost cost the Allies World War II as he tells it, the Nazis knew an invasion was coming and in an effort to stop it, a Nazi spy got a hold of a pack of Lucky Strikes, copied the tobacco formula, so they created tons of counterfeit cigarettes that they then poisoned. Uh, the Nazis sent the deadly cigarettes on a U-boat that was bound for England, but the U-boat never made it there because it got bombed by a B-17 and D-Day ended up going on as planned. Ram Rain thinks it's stupid. And he says that anyone can buy an American cigarette around here. It's not some sort of... You know, hard-to-get item. And Clark says, well, does Charlie know that? And they all go back to work while Ram Narain huffs off. Rob notes that he's figured out why people call Clark Aesop. And Clark says that telling stories helps pass the time. Later that day, the guys are piling sandbags, and Ram Narain is complaining some more, saying that someone should really frag larnick. Clark tells him to cool down, because a smart man like that will take care of himself. He then relates another story about a guy named Chris Furist who was always ready to make a buck, who always avoided problems as well. Then one time he swiped its M16, thinking he could ship it home uh, piece by piece. When he got home, put it together and then you know, sell it on the black market. But the thing was, his wife got all of these pieces didn't know what her husband was doing when she got them all together she took them to a friend of hers who was a gunsmith the gunsmith reassembled it and then they sent it back to him and Furus wound up getting in the brig and getting kicked out of the army The next day, the 23rd is dropped near a village, and Alarnik spots a VC and orders his troops to engage. One of the guys, Light, narrowly misses getting killed by a grenade. Rob calls for a chopper, while the rest of the unit heads into the village to get a tour from Alarnik, who points out all of the various evidence of the village being being a VC hideout. He orders a chopper, and then he says the first squad to kill a dink with a weapon gets a free bottle of anything they want on him. Clark then launches into another story, this time about how when he was on his first tour, his unit totaled the village and took some orphans to an orphanage. Vinson, he believes it was called. It was a Catholic orphanage with very little, and they did the best they could to provide them with supplies like blankets, but it still wasn't enough. This made Clark think about his own family back home, especially his brother, who was getting ready to come to Nam, and that prompted Clark to re-up so that his little brother didn't have to. Later on, Rob asks Clark if the story he told was true, and then explains that Light was very much like him. He re-ups so his his brother didn't have to go over here. However, his brother, who was in the army but only in training, suffered a brain hemorrhage after his drill instructor drove him too hard. Clark says he's sorry. Rob says don't worry about it, implying that Clark's stories have been extremely helpful these last few days. They all return to the hooch. Rubino is now blasting Return to Sender and all the guys turn around and make a beeline for the club. This is the first issue with Wayne Van Zandt uh, as the permanent penciler, although the cover, which shows light about to be hit with a grenade thrown by a VC, was drawn by Bob Kemp. It's not as striking a cover as the Golden ones were, uh, but at least it shows something that actually happened in the story. And I like Van Zandt. Uh, his art is a great fit, even if it's a little stiffer than Golden's was at this point. And Beatty's inks provide a nice transition between the two pencilers so the art isn't as jarring. The issue itself is a transition issue, and really, I mean, we have a few characters who we've already met, Ram Rain, Sarge is in there, Rob's there, and a few we're not familiar with. So we're slowly getting to know this new group of guys, some of whom I'm sure will be around for a while, and some of whom will be gone sooner than we want them to. What's tricky for Doug Murray here is that he has to have us want to get to know these guys, much like we really wanted to get to know Ed Marks, but there isn't an Ed Marks here just yet. In other words, we don't have like our own little avatar. We just have a bunch of guys, and there's a colorful assortment of characters, and guys like Clark certainly make the story more entertaining. But Murray now is relying more on us wanting to see what happens to already established characters to keep us going here, as opposed to seeing one guy on his tour. In my mind, it works. I mean, I want to see what happens to Rob. I want to see what happens to Ramnery. mainly because I feel like I didn't know enough about the latter and I've seen a nice change in the character of the former. A lot of character development in Rob. So they can be my gateway to the newer guys. You know, almost, I've been reading this for 12, 13 issues now. I almost feel like I've re-upped for another tour so I'm the more experienced person and these guys are coming over and I can kind of see it from that point of view. And the story that we get is a good mix of action And it's an effective framing device for Clark's uh, stories. The World War II cigarette story is charming in its way. It's kind of funny that the German spy who finds the pack of Lucky Strikes looks like Tot from Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the guy with the glasses and the hat. Uh, The story about Furist is funny. Uh, The story that Clark tells about the orphanage and re-upping to protect his little brother is heartwarming. Uh, Just like Rob's story about Light is tragic. In fact, one thing that this series has always done a great job with is showing the humanity of the soldier. 1967 was when the draft was becoming heavier and heavier and more and more men were being committed to war. So I can completely see a soldier with a younger brother wanting to protect him by keeping himself in the war so he can keep the kid out. I can also see how many of these guys often did the right thing, such as Clark's humanitarian duty toward the orphanage that he talks about. We get some bonding between the guys and a story that, while it doesn't provide any major changes, except maybe another superior officer as antagonist type of character, it's a good way to set up the next quote-unquote era of the comic, or phase of the comic, if you will. When I get back, I'll go over historical no- context, get into the letters, and ads. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I. Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. Destruct sequence completed and engaged. No! I found Mrs. Spock. I'm talking to Mrs. Fox Do you understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the two true freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek: The Original Series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. A couple of specific historical notes before I get into the overall look at March of 1967. The Nazi cigarette story is kind of true. Uh, according to an article published in 2001, On uh, I found it on the Metro UK website, but it was, uh, there might be other sites that had it the nazis actually were looking to poison allied cigarettes and coffee uh the article says german agents had allied commanders so worried that troops were banned from eating local food as they moved through germany in 1945 while mi5 had a bar of chocolate and a tin of Nescafe tested for poison after arresting arresting a would-be saboteur british forces were also warned to keep their eyes peeled for cigarette lighters that gave off lethal fumes when lit swastika-shaped belt, buckles containing a mini-pistol, and after a U.S. soldier died, poisoned alcohol. Other secret gadgets include special cigarettes, would, which would give the smoker a headache. The Nazi spy would then offer an aspirin tablet which would kill within 10 minutes, a poison powder that could be wiped on door handles, books, and desks, another killer powder that could be dusted on by... F- food by waiters. A tiny pellet dropped into an ashtray, which, when heated it up by a burning cigarette, ash gave off a vapor that would kill anyone nearby. Some of the gadgets were uncovered following a botched parachute drop by Nazi agents into northern France in March 45. The previously fil- secret files show as Germany planned sabotage operations to spark a new uprising after the war was over. Biological warfare was not ruled out. Female agents were ordered to use microbe weapons hidden in makeup mirrors, one of the captured saboteurs said he'd been told that if things went too badly in the war, Germany would use bacterial warfare methods, the papers at the National Archives in Kew, West London, show. I'm not sure if Clark's exact story was true, though, but it is kind of interesting, the, the, uh, the spy games that were going on uh, during the Second World War. Vinh Sun Orphanage is an actual orphanage in Vietnam, although according to Wikipedia, it wasn't established until the mid-70s. It is a Catholic orphanage, as Clark indicated, and many Vietnam vets have traveled there as volunteers. Uh, There's a video about this over on military.com that I will link to in the show notes, and I will provide a link to the orphanage's actual website as well. As for March 1967, there are only a couple of events that took place that relate to those in the Vietnam War. On March 8th, Congress authorized another $4.5 billion for the war. On March 11th, the first phase of the Cambodian Civil War begins. The Khmer Rouge, who were backed by North Vietnam, fighting the then-in-power Cambodian government. Cambodia being a neighbor of Vietnam uh, and some of the later operations that were spreading into Cambodia, especially the well-known, uh, but at the time, was a secret bombing of cam- campaign of, of Cambodia that, that went on for quite a number of years. I want to say that was under Nixon, however, and not Johnson. Um, I think Kissinger was uh, often gets the credit or blame for that. Uh, but anyway, this uh, particular revolution or Civil War of the Khmer, Khmer Rouge and the the current government uh, would eventually lead to the dictatorship of Pol Pot and the notorious killing fields. Something I might actually get to, even if it's kind of a... not exactly relevant to the NOM, but it is an, a kind of an offshoot topic or tangential topic that I may I may go into in, in one episode or two uh, with a special episode, somewhere down the line, depending on what I've got set up. From March 19th to March 21st, President Johnson met with South Vietnamese pre- Prime Minister Key in Guam. He urged Key to hold elections in South Vietnam. And uh, that information, by the way, comes from both Wikipedia and the History Place, uh, a website that is proving to be a great source of information on the events of the war. I will share a link in the show notes letters this time around there is uh john burchner of new berlin wisconsin says there was a slight problem with my copy of the nom number 11 nom notes were the same as number 10 please can i have the direct nom notes for number 11 and i am actually going to go ahead and read those off as well he says john you're right we've goofed on number 11's the nom notes we reprinted number 10s by mistake. Other readers who brought this to our attention were Steve Shacklett and Frederick H. Schnock, Jr. We apologize and print the correct notes here. All right, here we go. And a wake-up is your last day in the country or in the Army. Literally, the wake-up on the day you get to go home. Choppers or helicopters. E6, military pay grades which run from EI9, or is that L9? I think it's EI9 for enlisted ranks. To O1 to 010 for officers and East 6 is a staff sergeant, a fairly powerful NCO. Extend, make, take more time in country or in the Army. Extend your tour Freedom Bird, the plane that takes you away from the RVN. Grab some Z's, get some sleep. MOS, Military Occupation Specialty, what you're supposed to do in the Army. You also had a secondary specialty, something you could do in areas where your main specialty was not in use. RT, Radio Telephone, your link with base and support. R-E-M-F, impolite reference to certain backline individuals. Round Eye, a Caucasian or Negroid of any sort, usually a girl, one without the epicentric fold of the oriental eye. Short, almost ready to go home. Sky Pilot, the chaplain, the military version of a priest stars and stripes the military's own newspaper tet the most important vietnamese religious holiday the ville the village usually little towns that sprang up around military bases to handle the soldiers needs david clark talks about how um he's 17 years old he's a generation behind you writing about but he really likes the detail and thinks he likes the fact that this can reach youths of all ages and and it's that they're doing something very nice, nice there with that, educational. Max Bonekamp writes that he's sorry with people, he has to agree, many people who write to you about making the NOM more realistic. I think you should not risk not having the comic code approval and make a more realistic comic. Uh, the more ridiculous aspects of the NOM are. Uh, it's, He says it's turned into a propaganda cartoon instead of a realistic portrayal of the conflict. The soldiers keep re-upping for another tour just for the sake of keeping the same main characters in the comic You should show the anti-war feelings among the soldiers. I think the Nam could be an intelligent comic if you stop trying to show us a fantasy of what not Vietnam, quote-unquote, should have been like. The editor replies, I'm sorry you feel the way that you do. I don't think we've fallen into the propaganda mold you feel we have. Soldiers in Vietnam in 66 and 67 did tend to re-up more often as many of them were career soldiers. As for the rest, we see the preceding letter from David Clark. We think the kind of result he sees for which we need the code in order to reach more readers is more important than a Scotch more realism. Joe Schiwella of Richmond, uh, British Columbia says, I'm writing to ask about the picture on the cover of the Stars and Stripes magazine at Ed Marks Hands on page one of issue nine. Is this supposed to be a photo of this, of the time when a Buddhist monk sent himself on fire in the streets to protest communism? If the, it is, please let me know. I've pointed it out to my fellow Nam readers but they don't really know. If it is the picture I'm referring to, and I don't mean to be critical, I love your comic. Maybe you should have let the reader understand more clearly what exactly it was in the photo. Maybe Ed could have read the headline out loud, or you could have made the headline visible to the reader. Anyway, I, st- I still like the way you voiced the, v- the Viet's different points of view about the Vietna- Vietnamese. I hope the future issues in Nam will have the same quality. They say, Dear Joe, yes, there was a photo of a Buddhist monk immolating himself in protest. Such things happened many times in the course of the Vietnam War and became so common that people didn't even mention it most of the time. We don't really feel it necessary to call attention to such things because they're part of the background. It is to Mike Golden's credit that his backgrounds are so richly done and they abound with such detail that the issues of Stars and Stripes. It's there for you, readers like you who care enough to pay attention to the whole story, not just the combat sequences. Nam notes for this issue and not eleven. <laughs> Dink another pejorative name for the Vietnamese, both North and South. Di drill instructor, a kind of teacher in basic training. Dust off a pickup, usually a hurried one by chopper. Frag the disposal of a friendly troop, usually an officer and NCO, by members of his own army. Hooch, the place where the troops lived, their barracks. Immersion foot, a foot condition caused by the feeling being constantly wet, usually found after long patrols through rice paddies and monsoon season. I believe that's probably a more updated version of the old trench foot. LBJ, the long bin jail, the stockade for troops caught doing criminal things in the Nam. O-Club, the officers' club where officers got together to talk and drink. The counterpart to the NCO club, Pini Mundi. German rocket testing based in World War Two. RT, radio telephone, the standard communication device in the field. Re upped, re enlisted, signed on for another tour. S2, Army intelligence, enough said. 212, got a less than honorable discharge and VC, of course. Victor Charlie, Charles, or Charlie, Charles the enemy. Adds this issue. There is this thing. It's supposed to be a movie ad. It's for the M&M's Quartz watch. And, like, this hand that looks like a snake with all these watches. And I think this is Halloween time. I think it came out in September, or so this it, it's an odd-looking ad. It's meant to look like almost like this is a horror movie, like this horrible watch, or I don't really, really. We have, ooh, a Tang ad. This time, join the Tang soccer team. And we've got Pele, who is in midair and kicking a ball, pow, wearing a Tang soccer shirt, and he's saying, I'm Pele, captain of the Tang soccer team. Buy Tang to join my team, and you get all these things free. You can get an action poster of Pele. Or Pele, sorry. Official Tang soccer team iron-on patch. Rebate catalog that gives you the big savings on Spalding soccer gear. Pele's first best best soccer tips plus a membership card. Did anybody like was Pele relevant back in 1988? Uh, was 87? I thought he was big in the 70s. I remember him from like the early 90s when he was like uh, the head of the World Cup committee for the United States, bringing the World Cup to to the states in '94. But I don't remember anything beyond that. So. We have the bodybuilder, you know, the guy who can build the NPC model and all the girls are going to swoon Add The uh, official Marvel Comics tryout book, uh, which you could order for twelve ninety five. and I want to say, was it Mark Bagley who won or got his first big breaking comics because of the official Marvel tryout book? This is pretty cool. I, I like the idea that, that you could get pages to script and draw a plot uh, color ink letter that would have been you know part of me like would love to see that come out for a current comic company and, and see if, if they can find talent uh, through there that would be really really interesting to see even if it's not Marvel DC if it's like Kaboom or IDW or one of the uh, smaller smaller comic companies it be a very, very interesting contest these days. We uh, the the center full, the center splash of the paper in the middle, the two-page ad, whip, dribble, spin, rescue, duck, hurdle, bombard, screen, roll, dive, pass, evade, sprint, raid, dunk, hurl, loop, leap, capture, stab, defend, shoot, invade, blast, escape, attack, jump, and swerve. Insert Konami video games into the Nintendo entertainment system and play your heart out. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B.A. Stark. We see Russian Attack, Track and Field, Top Gun, Castlevania, Double Dribble, Stinger, The Goonies 2, and Gradius. This is the first gen. of I think Contra of them would be a little bit later, maybe 88 or 89. Direct Comics and Games has an ad. Uh, They're out of Los Angeles. Nothing really interesting. They're not calling anything really, really big. Although you get a... Subscription to the direct catalog, a free poster, free comic, and a free Marvel sticker uh, with with your order. Bullpen bulletins this time around. Item after an eight-year tour of duty, one of Marvel's staunchest men in the editorial trenches has been grabbed granted an honorable discharge. Larry Hama is, I guess, leaving an editorial post, although he will continue to script G.I. Joe and G.I. Special Missions, work on a number of new projects uh, for Marvel. Uh, and then Michael Higgins, the melancholy Michael Higgins, will be assisted uh, by Pat Redding, and uh, that's that actually kind of shows the editorial turnover of, of our particular um, our book here. They talk about how they bought uh, Tom Defalco a robot for his birthday. I don't know what type of robot. I wonder if he still has it. The profile this time around is on Anne Nesenti, who at the time was editing X-Men New Mutants and Classic X-Men, um, and did have a run on Daredevil, and or this time, I think, was had her run on Daredevil, and uh, was writing... Had some Spider-Man work and did some Star Wars and and what have you. And Anything interesting uh, this time around? We've got uh, Tales of GI Joe had started, so we were running the the GI Joe reprint issues. I don't remember. See, this is not this is not a period of Marvel I'm that fa- familiar with, even though I was kind of sort of. No, I was done collecting GI Joe. Uh, my last issue of GI Joe was issue sixty-seven, and this is sixty-nine. Marvel Supermarkt. The holiday subscription ad with the Spider-Man stocking hanging on the chimney on the fireplace mantle is there. The Beat Bonded his own game top secret SI uh, role playing game ad is on the inside back cover In the back is the Forgotten Realms One Step for Dragonkind. Uh, the future is here for millions of AD&D game players from TSR. And this is the type of ad that ran for years Years and that is it for this episode of In Country. Uh, join me next time. Two weeks, I'll be covering the Nom Number Fifteen, and if all goes according to plan, so will Professor Allen at the Porter Bin Podcast. So stay tuned for details on that. Until then, take care. Well, that was You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.